Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the weekly podcast that explores the nooks and crannies of living in a body. Sometimes it's the two of us having a casual conversation through the filter of that day's topic, and other times we have special guests who add their voices to the chat. We are yoga educators and body workers with decades of experience as practitioners and teachers. It is with reverence and joy that we choose to take these conversations off the mat and into the microphone. Our aim is to understand the human experience through the stories our bodies hold and the stories they tell. Since having a body is the one thing we all have in common, it seems like a good place to start. We are your hosts. I am Teresa Tobin Macy. And I'm Sherry Sadoff Hank. Join us on this journey of discovery as we sleuth our way to the connections of our individual tales to the collective experience of being alive. So it is episode what? 33. 33. Wow. Magical number. Let me see what that actually means. Yeah. In the book. Oh, I love when we get all of the meanings for our guide animals, like the red fox that we've talked about previously that kept showing up for both of us. Now, you know, what the yeah. meaning of our numbers are. So 33. I can't. So let's see. From Doreen Virtue, her little book of numbers, 33. You have a strong and clear connection with one or more ascended masters who have answered your call and your prayers. Keep talking to them as they're helping you with your present situation. Thank you, ascended masters and angels and all the unseen forces at work on our behalf. I find it really super interesting that it talked about connection, which was our, one of our topics for today was connection and community. So those stars are all aligned, even with our numbers. Absolutely. You know, when before we actually started camp, we did four episodes on the different themes that we were intending to share with our campers and intending to bring to light through our conversations and activities. And now we have this, it's not so unique. I mean, it is unique in that we get to do it and not everyone gets to do it, but we started the experience of camp. So now we get to take those themes that we planned and we get to talk about what actually happened. You know, there's this this chasm between intention and outcome, anticipation and what happens. Now, I'm always telling my kids that anticipation is the hardest part of anything because once you can kind of get over this, you know, expectation of, you know, whatever you think might happen, the actual thing is always different. And it's never quite, at least in my experience, the things that I'm afraid of or the things that get me feeling anxious or all of the other qualities like that very rarely actually manifest. You know, they live in the anticipation rather than the outcome. Yeah, we had a variety of different anticipations about camp this time because of some of the things that we had planned and the excessive heat that was going on that people were either anticipating just being way too hot. So, you know, when it's warm like that, you know, we have to honor our own being and honor how we, how we are affected by different types of temperatures. For me, it's cold is more, is a lot more difficult for me than hot, but it was so, so hot that there was an anticipation of 
how is this all going to work out being outside in the middle of the afternoon in, a, you know, excessively warm conditions. And that was kind of co-balanced with the anticipation of being able to be in connection and community and still continue to grow and be a part of the neighborhood that we're creating. So two different ways of looking at the same the same. Yeah, and we had very different anticipations. I mean, I was living in a particular fear because, you know, using words like hot and warm, there's a, you know, we can apply whatever kind of idea we think, what is hot, what is warm. But when you get into temperatures exceeding 100 degrees, and our demographic, I mean, we're in our 50s and 60s, and our people are 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Like, these are the, this is the demographic of people who came to camp. And so I had a really deep-seated fear of the dangerousness of the temperature, of the potential for that. And a couple of our campers had very significant and real reasons why they didn't want to come. And I'm glad they didn't. And we're going to do something on the other side to kind of fill in time for, which we'll, we'll talk about later. But I found that the reality, again, did not match my anticipation. We found ways to keep cool. We found it didn't feel as dangerous as I thought it was going to be. And at the same time, we all need to make those decisions for ourselves without the fear of repercussion, bias, or judgment, which brings us to something that you talk about with such great skill and knowledge. And that is when we started building our community and we were thinking this holistic place, how fascia is the model for building community. And, you know, I won't use your word. <laughs> you go. <laughs> How is that? And what, what happened when we, when we came together on such a, a crazy hot day? Yeah. You know, so one of the things I talk about is fascia is deforming and reforming based on request without bias. And once we knew that, you know, we had to make some choices and decisions about what camp was going to look like. And if we were even going to host it, we decided to ask the community, what is your request? And to be able to, you know, really invite all, all of our participants to share their thoughts. Did they want to reschedule the whole thing? Did they want to move to Zoom? So what was the request of the majority of the people who are registered for camp? And I found that really quite interesting for my neighborhood, you know, the deforming and reforming based on request. And we got an overwhelming response of, we want community, we want connection. And that presented you and I with a lot of pivoting that happened at the last minute. So we had a request, can we please still get together, those who wanted to, and those who didn't, we, you know, of course, were honoring their own individual needs. So we started to pivot and make different choices. For instance, let's talk about the elements like fire and water. Well, we were going to sit around a campfire and eat gluten-free vegan s'mores while telling stories. And imagine building a fire and on a day that is, is sort of exemplified by fire. It felt like we were, you know, there's that fireball in the sky. And how do you cool fire? Water, right? So we made a little pivot and we said, Mother Nature has already provided us with the fire element in the way of heat. So how can we balance that out? And we started planning and boy, did we 
have some incredible fun. So first of all, shout out to Facebook Marketplace, because if any, if you need anything, it's there. So I found a baby pool one mile from where camp is being held at an incredibly low value, uh, price. So thanks, you know, for having that available. We brought it to camp and we filled it up with ice water <laughs> and started from the ground up of finding ways to bring coolness to the element of fire. And while still honoring what it is that we had intended. So this little baby pool, it's the same shape as a campfire would be. We could sit around it. Of course, we're sitting on the ground. <laughs> I put my feet in it and not thinking that it's just going to collapse that side of the baby pool and water's rushing out. And oh, But, you know, we were able to, people stepped into it when they felt like it. They could walk through the baby pool. We had a huge cooler also filled with ice water and hand towels that people could go in and wrap around their necks and put on their heads and wrap around their wrists. We had a huge hose that from, there's this great little structure on the farm called Food for Thought Cafe. And so that's, we, we tend to gather around there under the shade of a great tree. And, but they had a spigot there that we could put our hose there. And, you know, we, on the, the attachment to the hose, better than a sprinkler. It had all sorts of, you know, ways, whether it was a shower or mist or a soaker, it had all different settings that you could, you know, enjoy yourself moving through. And we did. And we did. More on that in a little while. <laughs> and as adults at a camp, what better thing to add than drinking games, right? <laughs> so you're thinking on a hot day, do you really want to be out there drinking? Well, we did because everybody had ice water in their, in their insulated cups. And the theme for camp was alignment, awareness, and anecdote. And every time either Sherry or I or somebody in the group used one of those three words, everybody was encouraged to drink their ice water. So if you're listening and you have water, if you hear us talking today with and say anecdote awareness or alignment or even anecdotal anatomy, <laughs> all the A's that we can possibly come up with, don't forget, take a nice long drink of water. It's still hot out there. And hey, man, if you have something other than water, that's your business. We're there's no no bias here at all. It was, you know, in 1988, I did an archaeological dig in Israel. And one of the things they told us was if you're thirsty, it's too late. You know, drink, 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 drink. So I was joking around with them saying, you know, if you're getting dizzy, it's either that you're not drinking enough or there's something other than water in your cup. <laughs> that's okay, too. Yes, that's okay, too. Mm-hmm. But we laughed and we had fun and the feedback at the end, and we haven't gotten to the last activity and I'm kind of holding on to that one, was that people were comfortable and they had, you know, we kind of talked to the community and said, please keep communicating with us. If you find that it's too hot, let us know. We can, you know, we can leave a little bit early. If you have a need that we haven't anticipated, please communicate that with us and in any way that we can, we will we will make that come true. But with all of the cold water that we had available for putting on the body, stepping into, or putting inside, we were able to stay for the entire two hours and really just continue deepening our relationships and our connection with our neighborhood. And I'm glad you said neighborhood because you know, we started this season with 
being architects of this holistic place, of creating this neighborhood where, you know, we would be able to kind of build from the values and pillars that we feel are important and of value. And so camp became a live program, a live experience that gave us an opportunity to put some of those pillars into practice and to see what it looks like to actually create a 3D, you know, animated live experience, a place where people are magnetized to because of the pillars, because of the values, because of the activities and practices. And so, you know, I don't think it's much different than, you know, areas where you you flock to or that you're magnetized to because of the energy of the place. And so we haven't abandoned our roles as architects. We're actually putting that into practice through this camp experience. And I got to say, it has been extremely gratifying to see community in action. You know, we're, we're coming off of this pandemic where we've been asked to isolate. And for good reason. I have absolutely no issue with, you know, when there's an acute situation, having to respond with, you know, doing what needs to be done. And, you know, the fallout after that, whatever. We could have that whole other conversation another time. But as someone who's always sort of been an extrovert, I've discovered through that isolation that I'm actually, I think, an extroverted introvert. And I probably have many different combinations of those two words at any given time. So again, it's not an either extrovert or introvert. It's, you know, whatever. And I don't mean for the conversation to move in, in that full direction. But only to say that after a time of isolation, of seclusion, the basic need for humans to connect becomes magnified. Whether you're someone who prefers seclusion and alone time or not, there's still this basic need. And so when we put that question out based on the potentially dangerous heat, and that, you know, we had a few people who were not going to be able to attend anyway. We had a few people who responded to the heat because they had very real reasons to. And then the rest of the people were like, fuck Zoom, fuck any more virtual things. We want to be in person. And so we did that. We created the opportunity to gather even within this heat. But it also gave us an opportunity to look beyond camp and say, you know what? For those who've missed and for those who, you know, may not, we still want to sit around a campfire, eat gluten-free vegan s'mores and tell stories. So we get to do that. We get to do that after camp, maybe in the autumn when the weather gets a little bit cooler and we can actually enjoy the element of fire when we are in a, a different temperate temperature. So I just found all of that really exciting to see our neighborhood, to see our holistic place in action. And that the campers, I mean, we had one camper who brought cut-up watermelon. We had another camper who brought battery-operated fans and other things that she had in, in ice water that we could put around our necks. We have the people who gather have stories of their own that are, well, we all have stories, we know this, but that we get to learn from and that it's not, you know, a didactic experience where Teresa and I are up there teaching people. You know, there are, there are teachings and there is learning, but it's happening in communion. It's happening. We don't know where it's going to come from. It could come from any person in the circle. I think that's the power of camp and gathering is, yeah, you and I, we facilitated. We told people we were going to do this. You know, we hold ourselves responsible for being prepared. And, you know, being able to pivot from what was intended to uh, what was our intention to whatever it needs to be. But the power of the gathering and, the, and camp and these types 
of connections and neighborhood activities are the people who are there. They bring all of the amalgamation of stories and emotions of, you know, looking out for each other. People would get up and say, oh, I'm going to go get a new towel. And, you know, does anybody need one? These are just things that, that are just common when you get together and you crave connection. And if we're going to talk about connection and how necessary it is for life, that's going to lead me right back into touch, right? Because touch is one of the only senses we can't live without. And I'm not saying that we spent a lot of time touching. It was hot. But touch doesn't necessarily have to be this physical laying of the hands. And we can hear that in our speech. Like, she really touched me when she showed up. Or... I was touched by the story that you shared with us. There's many different ways that we can experience that connection or how we touch one another in physicality, but also in the alignment of the body, the mind, the spirit, and the breath. Um, so many different ways that we can connect as, um, as a community, as a neighborhood. And we connected through breath. Sherry, you offered us a really great breath practice. And we practiced together in unity as one collective whole to cool the environment and each other and ourselves. <laughs> you, you brought up the touch thing. And I, this has nothing to do with anything that we've talked about. And it has everything to do with what we're talking about. Last weekend, I guess there was a Newport Folk Festival and Joni Mitchell for the first time in over 20 years, did a live set. And uh, it was so beautiful. I mean, that day, the next day, every one of my feeds on Facebook was someone posting one of the songs. And in a case of you, I don't know if she sang that one or not, but one of my favorite lyrics in there, actually, I, had to, I wanted to make sure I wasn't messing it up. She, it's, she says, love is touching souls. Surely you touched mine, because part of you pours out of me in these lines from time to time. So there's this feeling of, you know, we are touched by actions, we are touched by emotions, we are touched by other beings and souls. And at some point, so, so much of what we're doing in this building of community and talking about connection and even fascia, that sort of enmeshed piece, that we are not separate from each other. And we can say that till the cows come home. Is that the, the saying? Or That's it. <laughs> we can say it till whatever. But until we experience it and remember, you know, Liz, who is the proprietor of the Prancing Peacock, where Teresa and I both taught and, and met, you know, she would say that so much of this is about the great remembering. The great, and she said, I think, the great remembering. And that is, I think, pivotal. We use the word pivot. It is pivotal to so much of how we show up in the world. You know, when we remember we're connected, we treat each other in a different way than if we think we're separate. When we remember that we are nature, we interact with nature in a different way than if we felt that it was other. You know, I don't need to go on and you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned fascia. So, you know, and the great connector. So every single thing in the body is wrapped in this membrane of fascia. So fascia is ubiquitous, uh, like a web. Everything is connected and each and every cell, each and every part of our body is wrapped. So it envelops, it envelops the heart, but all of the heart cells, every blood vessel, every muscle fiber, every little cell 
every little cell in the body <laughs> wrapped in this membrane of fascia, which means that it separates one part from another part. So it keeps everything separate so that it has its own space, just like each of our homes are our own space. That we have these walls that say, this is my home, this is where I live, that's your home, that's where you live. And we have this delineation. But in addition to separating everything, like a community or a neighborhood, it also unites everything because it has no beginning and it has no end. So every little part of our body is influenced by every other little part of our body. And I just feel like I want to just break out into every little cell in the body is happy. Every little cell in the body as well. <laughs> I don't remember what episode we actually sang that song, but anyway, that's why I believe it's how our body is constructed. The architecture of the, our internal environment is such a, a fabulous model for a neighborhood. That so we philosophically there, we could have a conversation. Now I know this doesn't show up in actual anecdotal evidence. At least I haven't heard any stories about this. But the way that you described the wrapping, it feels like even in the absence of external touch, our internal body is touching itself. Like the organs, I had a teacher once said, there's not a whole lot of space inside. Like we talk about creating space in yoga and opening up, but everything is really kind of cramped in there. It's, there's not a lot of space. There's not a lot of, you know, place to move. But so with everything, all the organs kind of touching and connected, even within their individual wrappings, there's this sense that the world within us is always experiencing an abundance of touch. Oh, yes, it is experiencing an abundance of touch. Just think about, you know, in a really simple way, the rivulets uh, that our blood flows through. Like there's this constant moving of the fluid within the veins and arteries that is touching. You know, I, I often think about it, and I know I probably think about things differently than others, but the rivulets, like when water flows through a little stream and it touches all the rocks, it smooths all of the edges as it touches and it goes by. And, you know, we have receptors inside that allow us to interpret different sensations that come in the body. Just like think about eating and the food that you put into your mouth and how that food and its texture is interpreted as it touches the tongue and touches the tissues in the oral cavity. You know, if you have happened to have food that you don't like because the texture is weird, like some foods I don't like, I love their taste, but the texture is odd, so I don't want to eat them. But the food touches. And as it goes down your throat, it's touching its pathway all the way down until it lands in the stomach. And we did a little exercise I was just drinking our cold water. <laughs> Can you feel it from the time it enters and touches your lips, the coolness in the oral cavity and how far down your throat to your stomach, this interoceptive awareness, do you notice the water? And most of us stop noticing it really at the base of the throat. You know, I know that if I'm hungry and my stomach is empty and it's growling, I can have an interoceptive experience of where my stomach is. I have that 
it it also it almost gives me a proprioceptive idea of where it is in space, like this actual physical organ in space. But when I eat or drink, I lose all awareness, drink, awareness, and alignment, and anecdotes, drink, drink, drink. But I lose a sense of it once it passes that little softness at the base of my neck. And, you know, unless, again, if my stomach's empty and I can feel it, like, drop in, but that's that's rare. So I found that really interesting that how often we move through our days without the awareness of what's going on inside our bodies. You know, we can kind of see outside. Anyone else kind of, you know, get lost in this idea of living behind your eyeballs? I I sometimes get lost there. You know, this perspective of looking out into the world from behind the eyeballs and, you know, how that changes things. And I'm going to digress a little bit here. If you've ever taken a selfie in front of a mirror, but like the selfie with the camera facing your face, and then you turn it so the camera's away and you take a picture of yourself in the mirror, that kind of selfie. I don't know if you've had this experience, but the selfie when the camera is facing toward me, I always like less than the selfie I'm taking of myself in the mirror. There's something about the reflection looking back that is different to me than my perception looking out. But that may be a whole fucking season. I don't know. But that pillow behind the eyeballs. But so then I think of eyeballs. And are eyeballs organs? Where they, what are they? They're sense things. They're, yeah, I, they're water. They're not really, there's the muscle behind the eye. I don't know that they're organs. I, I don't know. I, I can't answer that specifically if they're considered to be an organ so or people not. out in listening land, if you have an yeah. opinion, like, please, this is the kind of thing that gets people riled up. That's not an organ. I'm going to let them know. Or that's this. I'm going to let them know. Please let us know. <laughs> we want to know. And we're going to Google it right after this. But this idea of feeling or knowing or relating in some way, because in this idea of community, it's all about relationships. And so if our relationship to our bodies are limited to what we can see and touch from the outside, we're missing a whole mysterious landscape. And, and I don't know that it serves us to, to, to like hold on to that too tightly. Like, I think it's probably a good thing that we're not living inside our organs constantly, but as a, an exploration, as a curiosity, um, you definitely brought that up for me at camp. Wow, I have so many things <laughs> that I want to talk about. Okay. Then our conversations would do yes. this. So first, I want to clarify just two words that Sherry used, which were proprioception and interoception. I'm not sure that we've done that in the past. So in case uh, you want the definition or just a slight conceptual idea of the difference, proprioception is where we are in space. So for instance, knowing how to walk around your house at night when you wake up in the middle of the night. You can wake up in the middle of the night, make it from bed to the bathroom or the kitchen for a drink of water. Maybe you don't even have to open your eyes because your proprioceptive awareness of your space and how you navigate through it is an understanding of how I get around, how I move through space and where all my body parts are in relation to the space that I'm in and how I move. So that's proprioception. Interoception is really getting in tune with the signals that the body gives you from inside. Like, I am hungry, I am thirsty, my bladder is full. You know, those are the types of communications that we get from the internal stimuli of the body. So I have a question for you, because I did use proprioception deliberately to describe understanding where my stomach was in mm -hmm. space within my body, 
not necessarily wondering if it was telling me I was hungry or if it was telling me that it was full or whatever those experiences of interoception are. Can we play with word that word like that? Can we talk about proprioception as from within inside the body if it's about thinking about it in relationship to where it is in space? I think that we can have enough leeway to let proprioception be a little <laughs> bit more expansive. Right? Let, me, let people know that's what we mean by that. So I thank yeah. you for, for specifying those definitions. And yeah. So, you know, I mean, it is anecdotal anatomy. So we do get to play a little bit and give ourselves some freedom to be creative. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is you talked about living behind your eyes and you know, so our eyes are really amazing. And what triggered what I'm about to say is you said the muscle be behind your eye. Well, if I get this right, and if you're an anatomist out there, give me again, anecdotal anatomy, so a little leeway here. But the muscles behind the eyes are oriented in much the same way as the shoulder girdle muscles are oriented. They have similar angles. They have similar orientation. And the way that I learned about that was because the eyes follow the hands, right? If we're doing things, the eyes have as much range of motion as the shoulder joint itself. And although the eyes aren't always following the hands, we're searching the landscape, we're driving, we're doing many other things with them, but they need to be able to make this full circle to be able to see peripheral, what's in front of us, above us, below us, in the same way that your arm can move in all different directions, go to the eyes. So the muscles that control the eyes have a very similar orientation as the muscles of the shoulder girdle, or as some people might call it, the rotator cuff. Not the rotator cup, the rotator cuff. <laughs> so, but you also, when you were talking, I had actually, I'm sorry if you heard the clicking of my phone because I was, I had the sound on, but I wanted to make sure that I had this number. Our eyes are 98% water. And we're talking about the water element and how that, you know, how do our eyes that are made of water diffuse really hot situations through our perceptions, through our vision? You know, what we see when it's, when it's hot, like does the water piece, I mean, this again, it goes into the philosophical. It's certainly not an empirically, empirically an empirical data piece. But, you know, if you think about the elements and how much are, we are made of water and, you know, you were talking about water and, you know, in relationship to fire and how we, you know, water can either put fire out, it can create a mist. And we had a science teacher as one of our campers. She teaches, I think, K through eight science. And she gave us a beautiful lesson on water cycles you know, how the, the sun heats the ocean and then the water evaporates into the sky, connects to the dust particles and all the things up there. And then when they get overly saturated or too full, that's when precipitation comes down. And there's this whole cycle of water and fire and how they are reliant on each other, even in our own, you know, sort of atmosphere and, and landscape and how amazing that is. And in the absence of rain lately here, we're sort of in this drought-like condition, you know, what does that mean? I mean, we drove by, we were coming home yesterday from the airport and uh, we're looking at the Delaware River on our way back. We were crossing over the bridge and how low it is, how we were seeing rocks. You were talking about rocks before and how water can smooth the edges. I'm always fascinated by the element of water as it navigates the rocks because it, the rocks don't, they don't keep them from where they're going. They just sort of 
the water moves around and over and under. And so in the process of navigating the rocks, it's also softening. But so what happens when the water lowers that much? And it was it was really dramatic and a little bit horrifying to see how low the Delaware River was. Yeah, we could definitely use a whole bunch of rain in so many, so many different places because, you know, fire is such an interesting element. Like when it's really hot, sometimes, or I'm really hot, my whole attitude and demeanor becomes fiery, right? And that can be fiery with like enthusiasm and passion or fiery with like, you know, dragon fire was like shooting out of my out with my words. <laughs> so, you know, we use the elements to also describe emotions. You know, I was very fiery or the fire element with end. How do I calm that down? Well, for me personally, if I'm all upset and I'm very fiery, I'm going to water. I'm going in the shower. I'm going in the tub. I'm going to find a hot tub. I'm going to sit, you know, at a lake. That is my calming for my fire because I love being by the water. And it's the reminder that all, like when you're talking about navigating around the rocks and I went right into fire being both something that warms and something that burns, right? Because it can have a very, it has a range, but so does water. Water can be extremely powerful. Well, all the elements big. can either heal or kill. You know, water you can drown in or you need to be hydrated. You know, not the either. There's all that in the middle. Fire is transformational. It burns away the shit that we don't need, but it can also consume us. You know, wind, you know, think about windstorms. I mean, we need the air to move. You think about a, a you know, stifling air, like that's got a, a quality to it too. Humidity can be stifling, you know, and as the elements interact with each other, they can also create the causes and conditions for either, you know, not either or, but, you know, anything ranging from optimal wellness to, to death. Yeah. Yeah. Because we had fire and water. We had the heat of the sun mixed with humidity, which just makes it hard to breathe and, you know, can be a difficult time to be outside when the air gets thick and still like, you know, with the heat, the water, and then the lack of air. So, I love when they all blend into a nice spring or or autumn day where the air is a little cool. There's a tiny bit of water. There's a crisp air going through and the sun still feels warm on my face as my feet touch the earth. I feel that way walking along the shoreline. You know, I, I love the water too. I'd rather be on it or by it than in it when it comes to oceans and lakes. I mean, I'll walk in. I love being in pools and hot tubs. Like there's so many different ways to kind of interact with water. But one of my favorite things is walking down the shoreline because the sand has the earth element, but it's not solid. It allows your feet and the different ways, like when it's wet sand by the, the shoreline, it's easier to walk on and it has the illusion almost of solidity. But also when the waves come and wash over your feet, there's that. And then the, your feet sink into the sand as the water ebbs back into the ocean. I just, I love all of that. And then the breeze that's coming, all of the elements when they're available, unless it's at night, you know, when the sun is down, but the sun is somewhere. It's just not shining directly on us. But there's, there's something really, uh, the, the integrity of that moment of walking on the shoreline where all of these elements find harmony is is really quite amazing. So I 
love the shore. Well, first of all, you get an exfoliation too if you're walking on the sand. But on the other side, you mentioned your feet like sinking into the sand. And I went out one day and just played with the Warrior Series. We did the Warrior Series with, you did the Warrior Series as part of camp. And I went out and my feet would sink in. And it was just so much fun to see how I could and could not balance with the movement and the ebb and flow of the waves, because I was in where the close enough that the water would come up over my feet, and to see if I could stay balanced through Warrior One, Warrior Two. I did okay with both of those. Warrior Three, though, one footed when you kept sinking and trying to navigate. That was a lot of fun because I kind of kept like falling over a little bit and it just meant that I got to do it again and again until I could execute Warrior 3. But it was cool, it was fun, and I got to play in the water. So there's that balance of that unevenness of the ground, uh, the earth beneath us, which is also kind of fun to play with for really experiencing our grounding sensations. Absolutely. And, you know, in the Warriors, there's only one of the Warriors that's an actual balance pose, and that's Warrior 3. And at the same time, any asana that you do on the beach, I think. Because I've only done an act, one actual class on the beach, and then whatever little poses I like to do when I go to the beach. But every pose is a balance pose on the beach. But, you know, if you think about balance, we typically think of one foot off the ground. But then finding balance on both of those feet, finding that, you know, place, that sweet spot where you can feel that, that groundedness even within a more sort of flowy ground. It's really cool. Grains of sand. Grains of sand. <laughs> through and, the hourglass. Oh my gosh! Yes, like great, like like what what is it? Grains through the hourglass. So is the time. What days of our lives? Days of our lives. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh my gosh! I was an ABC girl though. <laughs> you know, all my children, one life to live in General Hospital. I yes, the days of our lives. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I was in the same place. I can remember my mom ironing, watching her stories way, way, way back. Ah. Uh, Anyway, beyond the stories. Don't, well, no, but it was uh, anecdotes. It's all about the story. Anecdote, drink, drink. Drink, yeah. drink. Oh, yes. I would drink, except I left my water really far away when I sat down. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I do want to kind of talk about our fun mist walking. Yes. So maybe some, uh, you know, this might be something that you can try at home. This isn't one with, that has caution that says, don't try this at home. <laughs> no, please try this at home. Please try. It's a great thing to do. So we had a mist walk and I was able to hold the hose and put it on its mistiest setting while Sherry. I led a formal walking meditation, uh, a Buddhist formal uh, you know, practice through the water. And uh, we walked twice. And the thing is, you want to walk slow, but not so slow that you're there hours and hours. But it's, it was a mindful. It was about the awareness, alignment of our walking. You know, what's the story that's going on as we're walking? So all of these things, all of these themes that we intended for the day, were able to kind of slip into all of the activities that we did. And so we walked twice. And then after that, Teresa had the idea of doing sort of a conga line. And so we switched and I took over the hose after dancing through once or twice. But I'm more of a free form dancer. I'm not, I, line dances sometimes are hard for me. So we kind of did a little dun, 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 dun. And everyone did their own free form dance through the water. But when I took the hose, I put it on the shower 
uh, setting. <laughs> yes. And, you know, at first when we went through with the line dance, you know, everybody really enjoyed it. They were having fun. But when they got to go the second time through, there was a lot more pauses underneath the water or the shower, dancing around, spinning and laughing, and really just enjoying the coolness and the playfulness of, you know, that, you know, of youth. And I want to say we're practicing youthfulness with all of these different games that we have been uh, doing at camp. Like just the idea of going to camp is practicing youthfulness. But the dancing in the water, oh, it reminded me of my younger days with sprinklers and slip and slides <laughs> and just being able to be uninhibited out in nature, dancing and getting soaking wet. Yeah. And then eating. I mean, we, instead of doing our s'mores, we had salty chips and pretzels. And, and like we said, one of our campers brought watermelon in. So we sat around and we concluded with, we had given everyone sort of an opportunity to uh, think about it beforehand, but to come up with a story to tell to, you know, as we sat around the pool and we're eating our salty snacks, you know, holding on to whatever precious water we could. And it was really, really interesting. I mean, a couple of people opted not to tell stories kind of like opting not to come, the community that we are building, this holistic place that we we feel so strongly about requires that you take care of yourself too. You know, you do that. There will be no judgment. There will be no, you know, repercussion for not participating. In fact, not telling a story wasn't not participating, but it was actually participating more fully by listening. There was a presence that was a little bit different. And I will say just from my own perspective, because when you're waiting to tell a story, you might be listening, but there's still going to be a piece of you that's rehearsing the story you're telling. Am I going to say this? How am I going to? Maybe not you. Maybe this is just me. But if you resonate, great. If not, I intend to listen 100%. But if, when you're in a circle and people are you're like two people away from my story, you know, yeah, I'm going to be thinking about, well, how am I starting this again? What am I going to say? How am I going to say this? And, you know, whatever default settings happen, they happen. But I did notice in the two campers who chose not to speak that there was a full sense of presence of listening. There was nothing else impeding their presence. And I think that's just something interesting to be aware of. Again, that's awareness. You know, how do we, how do we read the room? You know, Teresa and I talk a lot about, you know, what, what, when we've had guests, what's your TED talk? Well, mine would be reading the room. It's a spiritual guide to being human, but that requires an enormous amount of awareness. And until I can kind of play with that and practice that more, that awareness piece, my TED talk is still in construction. (laughs) (laughs) My TED talk will be about touch and it's still under construction as well, but it'll show up someday, right? Someday you'll hear it. So I want to talk about the Uh, that story a little bit more detailed. And I think I'm going to use that as my offering for today was the same story that I shared and a little bit more detailed. So the prompting that Sherry had offered prior to camp was, and when we chose to tell stories, was to think of a story that you tell all the time, a story that you've repeated to a variety of different people and see if you can tell it differently. And I think that's such an important part of anecdotal anecdotal anatomy. Okay, you can drink because those are both A's. Science and stories. And the story, you know, in 
season two, when we talked about embodiment and how we tell ourselves a lot of stories and sometimes they get stuck in our body, they get stuck in different places. Our memories are housed within our body. And how does the stories that we tell influence who we are today? So I'm going to share the story that I shared as part of my practice for today so that you can really get more than just an explanation of what this is. And maybe how the story has influenced part of your personality. And can we change the story to change the way that we interpret any given situation? So this happened probably when I was six or seven. So a long time I've been telling the same story in the same way. So here we are at dinner at my house. I have seven brothers and sisters, and my dad brings home Dunkin' Donuts. That means that there's 12 donuts at a table for 10 people. So we all get our favorite donut. And of course, now there's two donuts left. And dad is going to have one of the extras. But the extra donut that was there was my very favorite donut. It was Dunkin' Donuts, you know, the Bavarian cream donuts with the chocolate on the top. Oh my gosh, it was my favorite. So dad says, you know, well, you guys can figure out fairly who gets to have this donut. And then that person can have the donut. So here I am, number five of eight, and I'm waiting to have this donut. And they're saying, my siblings are saying, well, we can draw straws. And I'm like, but I have an idea. And they're like, well, we can pick a number. And I said, but I have an idea. And we can do this. And I kept saying, but I have an idea. And I don't think anybody ever really let me give them my idea. So while they were all deciding how we could equitably figure out who got to eat this magical donut, I picked it up and ate it right there in front of them <laughs> at the table. <laughs> and nobody noticed. Until I finished the donut, probably had chocolate all over my mouth. At which point, the only person, person who I know really noticed was my dad. And so everybody, of course, my siblings were wanting me to get in trouble because I stole the donut. <laughs> but he reminded them that he said it was equitable and I wasn't heard. So therefore, I wasn't in trouble. That was my interpretation of this story, the one that I told myself forever. I am invisible. But what if the story went more like this? Dad says that you can figure out who wants this donut, and if you figure it out equitably, you get to have the donut. And I sat there and I thought, oh, my gosh, that is my favorite donut. I love the way the chocolate looks on top of that donut. And, oh, I can't wait to taste the cream and take that first bite into my very favorite donut. Oh my gosh, I hope I get to eat the donut. I just really, really love those donuts and I never get to be the person who wins. Oh my gosh, I hope, I hope, I hope I get to eat that donut. And the whole time I was so consumed with talking to myself about the donut, somehow I won the lottery and the donut was on my plate in front of me and I got to eat the donut because I manifested exactly what I wanted by letting all of my thoughts rest around the donut. And then it was mine and it was delicious. <laughs> so, you know, the question I didn't think to ask when you first told that story is what was your idea? I don't have any idea, <laughs> right? I don't have any idea. And what really fascinates me is with what, what one of the campers asked. Her question was, how did you expect them to hear you 
if you were talking this. And I started to remember, I, I was trying to think when she asked that question, did I actually speak low? Or was that just part of the way I told my story because I felt like I wasn't heard? So I reinforced this story in a way that a child interpreted the situation and never actually looked at it from any other viewpoint than that one story. That one storyline was the only one that ever even entered my thought as being a possible narrative uh -huh. to that situation. And it goes back to the stories our bodies hold, the stories we tell ourselves over and over and over again. And the recognition that I told that story as a little kid. Is it real? I don't know. The memory is so written. Did you start telling the story or did you hear your parents or one of your siblings first tell the story and then you ran with it? You know, that's a really good question because I don't know the answer to that either. But I did ask with my mom, I was like, did this actually happen? Mm -hmm. And she said, yes, it did. So whether I remembered it or I heard them retell the story, you know, there's, I'm so young. It was when I was so young, I don't really remember. But it made me feel, and I was telling myself a story that I was unseen. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's a story of my own making. Yeah. That's a story I made up about, or I heard about this situation, and then latched onto it in only one lens, in only one version. Mm -hmm. So going back to that embodiment of our thoughts and the way we process our life with these different stories. And I, so I loved your prompt with all this to say, I loved your prompt of coming up with a story you've told over and over again and finding a different way to tell the story. And that was only one prompt. It was tell any story you want, but if you're going to tell a story that you've always told in the same way, find another way to tell it. Because I didn't want to limit the stories people were going to tell, but I loved, I wished you would have started the circle because it was, what an interesting exercise to do just that, to just pick a story that you've told over and over again and retell it in a different way. Because I know I, I default all the time to telling my stories in, in the same way. And it's, so, and I used to think it's because, well, the story didn't change. It's still the story. But when you started, you said, here are the facts of the story. My dad got the donuts. You know, there were eight kids and two parents that makes 10 people and 12 donuts. Like you really broke it down to the facts of the story and then the story that you tell yourself. So then my question is, because now I've got all these questions. You know, the first one was I'm invisible. Second one, you said you manifested it, but there was no sense of who you were in relationship to your siblings. The first one was you in relationship to your siblings. I'm invisible to them. Second one, it was as if they didn't even exist. You manifested this donut for yourself on your own. And so that's also an interesting retelling. And if you were to retell that story in that way over time, you've cast yourself in a different role. But it's, your siblings don't exist in that role. Isn't that amazing how that happened where I came into my own little cocoon of what I wanted to manifest and... In my second telling was like, I can manifest anything I want. Now, not that there's not an action in there somewhere. You still have to get that donut on your brain and into right. your body. So I'm not saying that manifesting is magical, but I told the story the second time from a way that I felt empowered for myself. And I, I, you know, I, I can kind of think that, let me think how I want to say this. It's that I gave them a role 
from my own viewpoint, not their role. I, I decided that they thought I was invisible in that moment. I gave them a role that they were playing that wasn't theirs. I assigned the after their becauses. In the second story, I got rid of all the after the becauses. This is what my siblings are doing. This is what they're thinking. This is how they're acting. And without giving meaning to what they were doing. And honestly, I don't even think in the first story that I remember anything other than one simple thing that I said over and over again. They weren't listening to me. I don't remember, you know, they were talking about pulling straws and things, right? But that could be a story for kids doing anything to make a choice or a decision. Maybe I even made that up. Who knows? Well, the power of story, the power of story to, you know, if we're retelling our stories in an effort to heal old wounds, then it, it could be like a story based on reality, you know, not the actual reality itself, because how do we actually get back to what that reality itself was? So when we hear like, you know, fictional nonfiction, you know, the sort of uh, what fictional history or whatever those designations are, you know, that if it's if the intention of telling the story is to heal, then I think that there's a lot more latitude to play with the narratives. When we're looking in a different way of healing, so for example, similar to you, when I w- I'm the youngest of four, I don't have as many siblings as you, but I am the youngest and the next sibling is almost six years older than I am. So the dynamic was very different. And if we went out as a family, often I was there was no place set for me. Like there was just they either forgot that I had a place there or my food always came last if it came at all. Like there was just this, a pattern had emerged. So if it had been just one example of being forgotten, and I'm going to do that in loose quotes, then I might say, oh, that's interesting. I'm assigning all of this story. Like I'm just always forgotten, you know, and I'm a loud person. Maybe that's why I'm loud. Maybe that's why I'm intrusive in some ways to be seen, to be heard, because I was significantly forgotten over time. But a pattern had emerged, which gave me other data that when I, if I'm going to go back and heal that part of my story, then I need to own the fact that it happened in patterns as almost habitual. So it wasn't a story taken out of context, but a story that many stories that create a context. So I need to really look at that and say, they may not have forgotten me. They may have been busy. There may have been all these other after the becauses. But from my perspective, it happened enough times that I felt not in, maybe invisible was part of it, but certainly the word I've used was forgotten. And so in order for me to heal that, I need to be real with that and say, yeah, maybe I was forgotten, but it wasn't me they were forgetting. It was that there was some other person, you know, that wasn't a personal thing or maybe it was, I don't fucking know, you know, <laughs> but it happens enough times it becomes part of my story. Then what stories does everybody else have out there? Like while we're talking, do you have stories that are coming up in your own thoughts, things that you are told over and over again or parts of your past that you think about and they're like, oh, this is part of my story, you know? And it can be a part of the story that bolstered you up, right? Like there are other times that I was like the center of attention because I accomplished something amazing. So what is what are the stories that are coming up for you if you're li- while you're listening to us. And, you know, as Sherry and I are telling the different ways that we could interpret our story or our, at least retell it differently, change our after the becauses. Do you have the same thing? 
it's all very interesting. And, you know, I, and no one story is the story. We're made up of a gazillion stories, you know, in so many different ways that we've identified ourselves over time. You know, the way I would see myself when I was, you know, young and, you know, maybe 10 and under is different than I saw myself as a teenager and the stories that I would tell, you know, they change, maybe not the way I'm telling them, but the actual stories themselves. And so, you know, to give ourselves a fucking break, you know, after the because, yes. And if we're changing the after the because, it's still an after the because, Mm -hmm. you know, we're just changing the story. And so we have some of that power. The power of story is is potent and strong and within each of us to be able to rewrite as we go. But to understand what are we rewriting? We don't want to rewrite the facts. I don't think there is such a thing as alternative facts. Facts are facts. But the story piece, the part that we're making up, that's the part that we can play with. So I don't have an actual practice for you, and I'm not going to tell the story I told at camp because it came up organically. It wasn't a story that I had told many times over and over. I'd maybe told it a handful of times over my life. But what it made me curious about was as you are in community with your people, with your family and friends, and stories come up, maybe you meet someone new and it's an opportunity to tell one of your your classics. You know, you've got one in the back and you're just like, I'm going to pull this one out for this occasion. Really listen, be aware because, you know, this week was about awareness, alignment, and anecdotes. So you're telling a story. That's your anecdote. Be aware of how you tell it. But the alignment piece, I think, is the most crucial because is it the way you're telling it today, is it in alignment with your your thoughts, your speech, and your actions as they are today, not when the story first happened and you first started telling it. So it's not about judgment. Again, it's about reforming and deforming according to request without bias. So can we do that with our stories too? Can we listen to the way that we tell them? Can we notice where habit and pattern in the way that our speech and our words come out, how that surfaces? And can we make those subtle changes or significant changes to the story piece without interacting so much with the facts that gives us a sense of alignment and integrity for where we are today. And to remember, yes, you said when you tell it, remember that some of those stories, they were created at specific times in our life. You know, my story is told through the lens of a child. Now I revisit it through the lens of a, I just had my birthday, a 63-year-old. So <laughs> different way to look at it than, you know, a child's vision. But I find it interesting when I hear the different stories that have come out over and over and over again. And now I stop after the after the because and after the, you know, really diving into embodiment. And look, how much of my personality is influenced by my own telling of my own story, right? That I told this story in a specific way and how does that affect us? And I find that fascinating. And what's, and is there a difference? I'll ask the question rather than put a supposition out there. Is there a difference in the way we react to our stories when we're told the story from someone who was older at the time, who had a different perspective on the story, the action, the activity as it happened, and the way we saw it. And are we conflating our version with the older person's version? I know for me, I often conflate the wisdom I've gained over the years as I tell stories that I, there's no fucking way I could have had that kind of wisdom or awareness at 12. You know, I mean, it, it just sounds almost ridiculous and, and unreal. 
But so I can play with that. I can say that. I can say, I don't know if I felt that then, but this is how I see it now. We can use our words to reframe the story and still keep it real and still make it, you know, part of our, our history. But do we interact with that story differently when it's told to us that this is what happened? It's what happened according to you. Yeah. So in our neighborhood, just like in our fascial system, which is the great communicator filled with receptors of communication that tell us into proprioception and interoception and all of the different processes and sensations that we feel are processed through a network of information. In our neighborhood, when we're telling stories and when we're noticing our neighbors, we're in community with the people who live around us. I find this a really great and interesting reminder that the way that we view things that are happening in that neighborhood are the story we're telling ourselves today. But if we stepped back to something that was going on in the neighborhood at camp, in the grocery store when we're shopping and we see how, you know, an interaction that's going on and we tell ourselves a story about it, there's so many different stories about that exact same situation through the lens of a variety of different people. And maybe you notice that when Sherry and I talk in our casual conversations, we'll start on a topic and I might say something and Sherry will say, yes, and the way I see that is, or vice versa. I think it's problematic. Our whole witness system in the court systems is because you can have five witnesses Witness. seeing the same situation and each one will come out with a different story. And so it's necessarily problematic. I mean, it's the best we got right now. Or is it? I mean, people have been put away for, you know, uh, a witness identification, which was wrong. I mean, this is not news. I know I'm not telling you something you don't already know. But so when we value the witness role, let, you know, we have to look at it from different perspectives, too. And learn to just be open that uh, we're not infallible and that there are many different viewpoints on different things that we can stop for a moment and say, this is how I saw it. But tell me your point, because you know what, when I hear your view of different stories and different perspectives, I'm like, huh, I didn't really ever think of it that way. And maybe I'll change my mind from my perspective. Maybe I won't. Or maybe I'll just expand it and say, wow, I didn't really know that yet. I didn't think of it that way. And it changes my story a little bit or a lot based on this new information. So that's all I have to say about anecdotes and stories. Anecdote, drink. All <laughs> righty. I think I got nothing else. I got nothing else either except to say we're so glad you're here. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in and next time go play. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please click the like and follow buttons and give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. These ratings help our grassroots podcast to become more visible to more people so we can include more stories. Written reviews are like stars on steroids. If you're so moved, please write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We are just getting started. So if there's something you'd like us to cover, please email us at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Tell us your stories. We'd like to thank our editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos.